Tonight we're talking about work. Work is such a big deal in our life. If you look at a work week, we spend a third of our time at our jobs, 24 hours in a day, eight of those hours at work. It's a big deal. Work is a big item in all of our lives. Before we get into our text and some of the lessons, I just want to go through a few different things that are facts about works, work that I was able to look up prior to this message. One of the things I found out that was interesting is that the average person in their lifetime will work 90,000 hours. 90,000 hours of work in their lifetime. There's a time of the week that people feel most dissatisfied in the work that they do. And that, somewhat unsurprisingly, is Monday mornings at exactly 11.17 a.m., Did you also know that people who regularly get seven and a half to nine hours of sleep every night can be up to 20% more productive at their jobs? If you have an office chair that has wheels, someone that had nothing better to do determined that the average office chair with wheels rolls eight miles a year. (laughs) Only 20% of Americans are really passionate about their job. That leaves 80% of Americans who aren't passionate about their job. And going along with the theme that we have tonight, if you or if I, if we set happiness as the primary goal of our jobs, of the work that we do, the statisticians tell us that we'll most likely end up feeling just the opposite of that, if happiness is the primary objective. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at that very thing tonight in Colossians chapter 2. I'm sorry, not Colossians. Uh, We'll talk about Colossians later. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And we're going to be in verses 18 through 26. I'm going to read the first six verses. But before I do, I want to just give us a little bit of context. Anytime we study or read a passage of Scripture, it's really important that we understand the context. Because before we can apply a passage of Scripture to our life, we have to understand what was the author's intent and what was the meaning to the original audience. And when we contextualize that, we can then apply it to our contemporary life and culture as well. So a couple things that um, I, I feel like we need to talk about tonight. First of all, Solomon, King Solomon, the king of Israel, he was an individual who indulged every pleasure imaginable of the flesh that the world could offer. And he came to one grand overarching conclusion. All of it is Havel. It's meaningless. It's nonsense. This term is, uh, can be used to describe a vapor or a mist that's just there and vanishes. He says, it's all meaningless. It's all nonsense. So when it comes to work, if you think of all the people that have attained and have generated a lot of things and stuff and money we'd be hard-pressed to find someone that was more accomplished than King Solomon. In fact, if we ask the question just how successful King Solomon was, every year as king of Israel, he received 25 tons of gold every year for 40 years. In addition to that, he had massive income that came in from taxation and from trading and other endeavors. It said that if you adjust it to today's dollars, his net worth would have been $2.1 trillion. T, trillion dollars. 
His net worth is more than Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, and Bill Gates combined. King Solomon had tremendous wealth. And if anyone had reason to find satisfaction in their accomplishments, in their work, in their endeavors, it would have been him. He would have been the guy, right? But in today's world, in the American culture, we kind of value the same things, don't we? We value these Solomon types. And we have this really, really high regard, this apex of how success is defined and what society values by the kinds of jobs that people have and the the amount that they're able to accumulate and achieve as a result of those jobs. But what do you think Solomon, this guy that had it all, he experienced it all, he accomplished it all, this guy of apex existence, what would he say about all of these things? Well, let's take a look in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be a master of all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is a vanity. So Solomon gives us sort of cheery pep talk, right, about work. And And he really comes to two main observations about the meaninglessness of work. The first thing he says is, all of the work that we do, all the wisdom that we accumulate, the knowledge that we have, everything that we apply to our work, and everything that we gain as a result of that, One day, that's just going to be given to somebody else. And they might even take credit for the things that we did. But even worse, we have no idea if they're going to be responsible with what they were given or whether they're not going to be responsible for what they have been been given. But all of these things are just being handed over to these individuals after we're gone. Now, he experienced this firsthand, didn't he? If you remember in 1 Kings chapter 12, Everything that King Solomon had was handed over to his son, Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam, King Solomon had no idea if his son was going to be good at taking these things on or if he's going to be really bad at it. Now, we look back and we can read scripture because we're after the facts and we realize that Rehoboam was a complete fool. He was a terrible leader. Nobody wanted to follow him. He was heavy-handed. He tried to oppress people to get him to follow him and it just ticked them off and said, I'm not going to follow you. Ended up dividing the entire kingdom So there's 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. And effectively, he's stuck at the bottom two and he loses 10 twelfths of everything that his dad ever worked for. Gone. And that's the result of Solomon's hard work. And he said, it's vanity, it's havel, it's it's meaningless, it's nonsense. The second thing that King Solomon points out is essentially the sentiment that work can be a real pain. Work can be hard and arduous. It can be super stressful. It can weigh on us to the point that we 
ponder these things in our heart as we're laying in bed at night and we just lose sleep over it. Anybody ever had that happen to them where they lose sleep over their work? Yeah, I certainly have. Now, if you're thinking at this point that had King Solomon put out a TED Talk as a motivational speaker, you would not be downloading that podcast. I'm right there with you. However, if we think about the things that he's saying, we also have to kind of concede the fact that he's really right in many of the things that he's talking about. I understand the pressure of um, you know, wanting to, to perform and do well and those types of things. I, I had a job many years ago when I was living in Minnesota, and um, I had a big project I was working on, and it, it caused me to work late hours. And I was working late into the night. I can't remember if I came in super early, like ridiculous early, or if I was still there late at night, whatever it was. But my boss had come back from a trip, and he found me in my office working at this like ridiculous time. And uh, great boss, you know, he's, he came into my office, closed the door, he said, Steve, let me tell you something. The cemetery is full of people who thought they were irreplaceable. <laughs> and he said, go home, get some rest. You will always have more work to do tomorrow. It was such a great reminder for me and I thought he was going to come in there and be like, wow, you're such a great employee. Thanks for you know, being so dedicated to the company. And he's just like, you're just going to be dead like everybody else, you know, and you're just, we're going to replace you in two days. I'm like, no, oh, thanks for the pep talk there. You sound like Solomon, you know. But it reminded me that there's so much more than just the, the work itself. There's, there's so much more. It made me step back and, and ask myself some of the questions about the work that I was doing and the, priori- the priorities that I had in my work as well. So is there a scenario that our work is actually meaningful? Is there a scenario in which our work is fulfilling in our life? To answer that question, I want to take us on just a little bit of a detour in our discussion tonight, a little bit of a, uh, a field trip, if you will, and talk real briefly about the theology of work. The theology of work. Work itself, uh, as you may know, is something that was actually created by God. It was part of his perfectly created world. When God created the world, he said it was good. God can only create things that are perfect and flawless and good. And work was part of that created world. It wasn't a byproduct of the fall. Work is something that God intended people like me, like you, like Adam and Eve, to participate in from the very beginning. And so... In Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 to 28, this text is often referred to as what's called the cultural mandate, that uh, theologians sometimes call it. Essentially, it's a, it's a cultural set of norms that God is establishing that he talks about how do we be fruitful and produce and work and multiply in this created world of God's. And he, he starts to set that up in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see this development of this culture of producing and working and using what God has given us in order to engage the world that he has created. 
We also see in the next chapter in Genesis two, chapter 15, it says the Lord took the Lord. God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now this is all pre fall. Keep in mind. So God is giving us the mandate to work and be fruitful and to multiply and work the land and and have dominion over the animals and to to be individuals who are cultivating. This is that cultural mandate that is being talked about here. But then something happened called the fall. This is where sin was introduced into God's created world. Now think of sin not as something that completely destroyed everything that God made, but it usurped everything that God made. All right. If, if you had a laptop and you accidentally spilled your cup of coffee in it, it still might work. It still might do some of its stuff, but it's kind of quirky. It's messed up, right? It's, it's kind of not functioning the way it was designed to function. That's what sin did to the created world. It kind of screwed it up a little bit or a lot bit. And work has been no exception to that. So through sin, work then became a cursed thing, and it became something that was much more difficult and much less enjoyable. Fulfilling work started to diminish in, our, in the lives of people, and this toilsome work appears. Now, toilsome, you hear King Solomon talking about this toiling. Toiling is a, is a straining or a striving or a, a, a very difficult endeavor. That's what toilsome work. So that fulfilling work is starting to get replaced or supplanted by this this toilsome work. We see this in Genesis, the next chapter 3, in verse 17. It says, To Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So in other words, if this is the very ground from which you are eating of, you're growing food, it's going to be painful, it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult because sin kind of messed that whole thing up. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Thorns and thistles, you can think of this as things like stressors in our job, the things that just weigh on our hearts and stress us out and bog us down. Maybe it's the constant overtime, the, the, the feeling that we're never doing enough, we always have to do more. Those are thistles and thorns. Maybe it's just plain up boredom. Maybe it's just a sense that, you know, I just, I'm checked out and I'm bored in my job and I'm just, you know, I'm not engaging my brain. Or maybe it's shallowness. Maybe it's a sense that I have no idea why I'm even doing what I'm doing. It just seems meaningless. I'm just going through the motions. Maybe it's this feeling of being, uh, it's, it's very demanding. We have this constant weight about our jobs and the things that we have to do. And if you're a student, it's just a constant need to perform and to make the grade or whatever it might be. Or there's the boss that's breathing down their neck and the, the pressure that that comes with. These are thistles and thorns, that crushing pressure to perform. Thistles and thorns shall bring forth for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So this is where we see work going from how God created it to where it is now tainted by the fall tainted by sin. So we're in this, this place now that, um, that God has promised one day in the future to redeem work. If we look at Romans chapter 8, it says that all of creation, including work, was subjected to futility, to frustration. And that's that kind of brokenness that sin brought about. But it also says in Romans 8 
that we're going to one day be freed from the bondage of that decay and from the corruption, those effects of the fall. One day that's coming when Jesus returns and all things are restored new. But until that time, Solomon gives us the rest of chapter 2, and he's talking about how do we function as people who still have to do work and do it in a way that's not completely just meaningless in every aspect. Because up, in, up until this point, that's really all we've heard from him. So let's look at 24 through 26 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And Solomon goes on to say, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So in verse 24, it's essentially the the sentiment that if work is really the end all, if that's all there is, is this meaninglessness of work that we just talked about in the six verses before, then I guess we might as well just try to focus on enjoying the fruits of that work, the eating and the drinking and the enjoyment. The only problem with that is, is that he's teed this up in the last chapter and a half at the beginning of the book saying all of those things are also meaningless. So it's not really this imperative didactic teaching that's saying, yes, go and enjoy the eating and drinking and enjoyment. He's just saying that if we're using work as sort of the end game, that's all there is left. And even that itself is meaningless. So up until this point, Ecclesiastes has been a pretty negative book. But then verse 25, there's a shift. It's really the first positive thing that has happened in this book. What King Solomon says is that we really can't have enjoyment apart from God. It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? In verse 25, for apart from God, who can have, uh, who can eat and have enjoyment? And it, it demands the answer, nobody. We can't have enjoyment apart from God. You see, God created enjoyment in all the things that are in this world that we enjoy, and he also created work. And he didn't mean for them to be mutually exclusive or diametrically opposed to each other either. But the problem comes when the eating or the drinking or the work or the fruit of our labor, when that becomes the ultimate thing, that's where the problem comes in. When we make that our goal, when we make that our end game, it leaves us feeling like many people that have been interviewed and talked to over the years, successful Solomon type people who have been at the absolute top of their game, They have unlimited functionally funding in their bank accounts. They've attained the highest level of leadership and position and influence over other people. And they've, from a world standpoint, they've had it all and they've done it all. And when asked about it, the sentiment generally speaking from these very individuals is, is this it? Is this really all there is? There has to be something more than where I'm at. Almost ubiquitously across the board, that's the sentiment of people who have risen to that level. But when we recognize that the worldly pleasures that we enjoy are a gift from God, and when we enjoy them in a way that God intended, 
it necessarily and always has to point to a greater thing than the enjoyment of those things itself. And that greater thing that it always points to is the worship of God. And so we start to see our work and we start to see the fruit of our work, not as an end, but a means or a conduit by which we can glorify God and worship him in our lives. The things should never be the end goal. Think of it this way. If you and I are on a roadway and we're driving down the road, eventually we might come to a cul-de-sac or eventually we might come to a roundabout. Those are both really real possibilities. Now, with a glance, these things are similar because they're both along the road and they're both kind of round in shape. But beyond that, the similarities really end. Because as soon as we enter into that cul-de-sac, there's nowhere else to go. We just keep driving in a circle at the end of that cul-de-sac, and the only way to exit it is to go backwards. In a roundabout, however, as soon as we enter that roundabout, we have an, a, a whole bunch of different opportunities that furthermore lead to other opportunities that we have to choose from as we exit any one of those roads from that roundabout. And so in that way, this cul-de-sac becomes sort of a, a, a dead end, a stopping point, And the roundabout becomes a conduit through which there's a whole bunch of other opportunities. And some of the cul-de-sac mindsets that we tend to adopt about our work, one of the things that we're going to talk about in our small group tonight are some of the, the mindsets that we have. Do we have a cul-de-sac mindset or do we have a roundabout mindset? Some of the cul-de-sac mindsets are viewing work with a despising view of work. That gets us into this cul-de-sac and we hate what we do and we just can't stand going to work and we dread that and it leads to laziness in the work that we're doing. Or maybe it's a mindset of worshiping our work. We make our work an idol in a lot of ways and that ultimately will lead to workaholism and putting too much emphasis on our work. Or Maybe it's internalizing our work Maybe the first thing that we think of when we think of who we are is our job title. Maybe that's the first way that we introduce ourselves. It's where our value is derived. It's where our self-worth is derived. Maybe it's, it's a bit too internalized in our life. Or maybe there's an overemphasizing of work. Maybe I'm using work to solve all my problems and to provide all my needs. And I'm, I'm, I'm using that so much and I'm fixating on it so much that I've kind of pushed God out of my life and no longer really need him. I no longer really need to, to pray or rely on him because I've just got this job. And if I just kind of keep this job intact and just do really well, I, I this just figure out all the issues that I have in my life. It's an overemphasizing of work. And God never intended us to live a cul-de-sac mentality in our work. Instead, he's called us to live a roundabout mentality in our work. One that allows us to use our work as a conduit to propel us into other opportunities. And there's two main focuses that I think we ought to have in the work. First, the calling of God is not so much the title on our business card as it is about glorifying God in any work that we're doing. If we look now at Colossians 3.23, it says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily, or work at it with all of your heart, the NIV says, as of working for the Lord and not for people. In other words, I don't care if I'm washing windows or painting buildings or teaching in a classroom or caring for 
you know, geriatric patients or whatever it might be, I want to work at it with all of my heart because it's not about me. I want to work at it with all of my heart because God is receiving the glory for every single effort of my labor and I want to make it about him. And so all of the things that we do, we do it for his glory. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So whether you're doing the work or whether you're enjoying the eating and drinking, which is the fruit of that work, don't use that as the end all. Don't get stuck in the cul-de-sac of that, God says. But instead, use that as a conduit. Exit that roundabout so that I can receive the glory for it. God, thank you so much that you provided this job for me. I know that I oftentimes take it for granted, but I also know people that don't have jobs. They're struggling to make ends meet. Thank you for providing, Lord. Thank you that you've given me the health that I have in order to perform the functions of my job in a brain with which I can, I can thrive in this job and flourish. Thank you for the people I work with. Thank you for my morning commute where I can listen to a podcast and draw closer to you. Thank you, God, for every aspect of the work that you've given me. Help me to do it solely for your glory so that you look great in my life. I have a friend... Um, He's a youth pastor in uh, Kansas, and we used to go to a, uh, a pastor's conference together, and just really a great guy. And he, his senior pastor has a ministry that talks a lot about work and how it can be used to um, just really glorify God in so many ways and to just promote human flourishing. And he tells an incredible story about um, an experience that he had on a passenger of an airline plane. And it's about a five-minute story, and I want to have you hear it directly from my friend Reed. So we're going to show that video, and uh, I would like you guys just to, to hear what Reed has to say as soon as Brennan cues us up. On Saturday, October 11th, 2014, uh, I was flying from New York to Charlotte uh, as a connecting flight back to Kansas City. I was returning from a conference with two of my friends, colleagues, and and as we were we were up in the air. Um, we noticed that there was a drop in, in uh, temperature in our, in our plane. And it was a little bit alarming, but we're like, oh, no big deal. And I was kind of dozing off. But then our, we started to notice our, our plane dropping in altitude rather quickly. There's a little bit of panic. I'm awake now. And then the panic increased when the oxygen masks deployed from, from above us. I looked at my friend Chris, who's sitting next to me, and we were pretty shocked. But we just put our, our masks on and and prepared for what was next. We had no idea what it was. No one was telling us what was going on and the plane started to go down even faster. And in this moment, I, I was honestly reflecting on the fact that this might, this is, this is it. That was a moment of thinking, I am near death. And I got my phone out and began crafting a text message to my wife and my three daughters, letting them know that I love them, that I'm thinking about them and that, that I'm on a plane, that we're going down. And a few minutes later, the captain came on and notified us that we had lost cabin pressure, uh, that everything else was functioning fine, that we just needed to drop to 10,000 feet uh, so that we could breathe properly. And so obviously, we can now kind of take a big sigh of relief. Um, we can take the oxygen masks off, but, but it was very much a scary moment. Um, and as my friend Chris and I were talking and reflecting and processing about what just happened, we noticed that as these oxygen masks are still dangling in front of us, that on the side of, of the little bag, says Lenexa, Kansas, which is a suburb of, of our hometown. And I kind of made a note of that. I was like, that's interesting that this company in my backyard made, made this device that really helped us. 
Uh, but it wasn't until about a few months later where our church, uh, we were going through a, a sermon series on faith, work, and, and economics of all things. And it was during that series that I think the Lord was, was doing something in my heart and mind by granting me this kind of imagination for the way in which the work of literally millions of people uh, serves to bless me and make my life better. And, and I, I just started to sit at my desk and look at all the things that makes my life easy, that allows me to do my work well. I was immediately reminded of the oxygen mask. So I got on online and, and just searched for oxygen mask, Lenexa, Kansas. And what popped up was BE Aerospace. And I looked at their website and I didn't even have really a plan. I was just, I was just kind of responding. And I, I went and found a, a contact and sent an email and shared the story of the oxygen mask and our, our flight. And, and, and as I'm sharing the story, I, I, I decided to also just share why I wanted to express my gratitude because I saw a connection between the way in which we work and how that blesses and serves our neighbors. And so in the end of that email, I, I said this, if I may be so bold, I'd like to thank God for the work that he has called and equipped your company to do. I know that not many people think of work like this as being work God cares about, but I strongly beg to differ. I believe that God cares deeply about all work that is done well and promotes human flourishing. So again, thank you for your work. And please, by all means, keep doing what you're doing and do it well for the common good of all. When I got the email, I said, well, you know, our people work here every day. They know we provide or we produce uh, life support systems, yeah? I always emphasize with my people that uh, uh, the products we make here are designed and used to save people's lives, and that it is very important that they produce very high quality product and that uh, for doing that or in doing that, that they follow all the procedures, the work instructions. And I thought it would be a very good message for them to hear it from someone other than their boss, yeah. When Reed came, we had the all hands meeting and uh, it was a uh, really a fantastic experience because there was probably very few dry eyes, I would say, in the room. And to see that uh, what they are doing every day impacted a person and his family and a lot of other person, you know, around it on the aircraft was really something that uh, impacted the people here. It really did. And there were people that came up to me crying and telling me how meaningful it was. No one has ever taken the time to express gratitude for our work. And I was so amazed by that, and it led me to think, gosh, how significant it is for us to pause, to th thank people specifically for their work, to not just make them feel better about what they do, but to also give them a more robust imagination for the fact that God is at work in our world through our work, and that God cares about our work because our work is a means by which we love and serve our neighbors for the good of all people and the glory of his name. Isn't that a cool story? You know, uh, when I heard this uh, story, it, it got me also thinking about ways that we can recognize the way that people work, particularly people who are often overlooked in their work. Um, and so, you know, I've even began sort of a habit in my life of pointing out to people in recognition for the work that they do. 
Maybe I stop at the gas station on Christmas Eve to pick up a, a last-minute grocery item, and the person that's working there, I, you know, I, I might say to them, hey, I just want to say thanks for working tonight. I know you'd rather be home with your family, but you being here enables many of us to be home with ours. So just want to let you know that what you're doing makes a difference, and thanks. Or maybe it's the janitor just sort of anonymously pushing a, you know, a mop bucket uh, down the back hallway, uh, just totally unnoticed. But just to pull that person aside and just say, hey, you know, I, I spent some time in this building today, and um, I'm just so impressed by how well kept it is. And it just it enables customers and clients and staff to just enjoy being here. And that is really in thanks in large part to you and what you're doing. So I really just want to say I appreciate what, what you're contributing to that. And I think that just speaks so much to people and trying to inject meaning and to, to inject the purpose that God has in our work beyond just um, drawing a paycheck or the things that we can enjoy from it. So the first thing that we talked about uh, in our um, two main focuses in our work, we talked about the glorifying of God and using our work as a conduit to, to worshiping him. The second thing is that uh, our work ought to be a place that we feel like God is mobilizing his people in every vocation and in every position of those vocations. We sometimes think of ministry vocationally, pastors and directors and other people that work in the church as those who are in ministry. But if you know Jesus as your Savior and you're part of God's family, God has mobilized you to be ordained plumbers or ordained accountants and other things that God is calling you and sending you out and saying, I need these people in these spheres of life to intersect with the lives of others to represent me well. I don't want them to just go through the motions and, and drive in circles and the cul-de-sac. I have so much more and there's so many opportunities once we get into the roundabout of glorifying God and using our, uh, our life to represent him. Have you ever thought of your work as a calling from God? Has it been something that's crossed your mind and your heart at some point? That you're not just there for the profits of the company, and you're not just there to check the boxes and to draw a paycheck, but that God has specifically, particularly called you to this at this particular season? I've gotten this right uh, sometimes in my life, but oftentimes I've gotten that wrong. Um, and I, I want to just share with you as we start to wrap up here just a couple of examples of the times I've gotten it right, not so that um, you're impressed with me, but just as an example of the types of things that we might be able to do as we just engage our workplaces. Those of you that know me know that I have a background in aviation. Um, I spent uh, some time as an airline pilot for United Airlines. And um, while we're on these trips and at different bases. We spent many nights overnight. We got to know some of the other pilots, and um, I'm not generally somebody who shies away from just speaking the fact that I'm a Christian, that I try to, try to live my life in a way that's pleasing to God and loving other people. Um, and a while into uh, my time, I was based out of Denver. We were in Billings at a hotel in Billings overnight, and I hear a knock at my door, and another one of the pilots walked in, and his name was Patrick. And he said, Steve, I just wondered if we could talk for a little bit. I said, yeah, absolutely, come on in. So he 
sat down on the edge of the other bed and um, he began to just share with me and pour out his heart with me about some of the trials in his life, the things that were happening with um, his fiance and that relationship that really seemed to be unraveling quickly and about some of the other just challenges that he was going through. And he was really clearly struggling with it. And he said, Steve, you know, I, I don't know what I believe, but you know, you seem to know what you believe and I know you're a Christian and I just thought maybe you'd be a good person to talk to about this. And so we talked that night about God's plan for our life and what it means to know and follow Jesus. And, and I said, you know, if you go back to your nightstand, you pull open that drawer. Thank you, Gideons. There's a little Bible in that drawer. And I gave him a, a list of a few different Bible verses to read. And I didn't know if he was going to read them or if he just thought I was a lunatic or whatever. But, you know, he left that night. And, you know, a, a couple of days later, um, we're on, I'm on a flight with a, a different pilot, but uh, in an airliner, there's the main frequency that you talk to air traffic control, but then there's also another frequency that is a company frequency that all the United pilots talk among themselves on kind of a private frequency. And I made a radio call to ATC and he recognized my voice and he got under the company frequency and he said, hey, Steve, I pulled up all those verses that you gave me. This is on company frequency. And I read all of them and I've got some questions for you. And I mashed the mic, and I'm like, thanks, Patrick. I'm glad you read them. What are your questions? <laughs> so with all of the United you know, flights and planes and everybody else, we were essentially having a Bible study on air in front of that. Who does that except for God? Only God can do that. And it was such an incredible experience. And from that spawned other opportunities to talk to people and to share with them. And you know, maybe there's people that thought, okay, this is just whatever. But God used that, and it's not because, you know, it was all about me, but God calls us to engage our workplace, to just live for him, to just be a Christ follower in the midst of that and to give him glory. I work in an industry now. Um, I, I spent 13 years on staff here at Highland, which was some of the best years of my life. I uh, have felt like God has called me back into the workplace uh, about four years ago, taking over my family business. It's a, um, It's an opportunity that my wife and I, who we run it together, we've really said from day one that we want to use our business to be very, very, very missional to serve our staff and the people who are clients of our business, to put people before profits every time. We have staff members, I don't know if any of them uh, know Jesus as their Savior. I, I, I don't um, really have evidence that they do, but you know, when there's things that are shaken up in their life, we sit down, we pray with them, and we talk to them, we share scripture with them, and now it's at a point where they come into our office and they're like, you know, I don't know why, but it really seems to help when you pray. Can we just sit down and pray about this? Because I'm really struggling with this. We're like, absolutely. Just, you know, and those are just opportunities that God gives us. So think about what you do. Think about whatever it is, whether you're a student studying for something, whether you're in a vocation, maybe you're transitioning between jobs, whatever that is, how do we use our role as a conduit, a roundabout to distribute our ability to give glory to God in all sorts of different ways? And how do we also secondarily use it to represent him no matter what we're doing? Remember the verses we talked about, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's what Solomon is ultimately saying. We don't have anything to enjoy apart from God. God has given us every good thing and he has called us to do it with all of our hearts. I want to just uh, close in a in a time of prayer, but let me just challenge us as, as we wrap up our time. Don't waste your work opportunities. 
Don't waste the minutes or any one of the 90,000 hours that you have in your jobs. God doesn't want to see that as just the end where we're just punching a clock and going home and living a life of the lemming. God, this says, I've created you for so much more. I have created you to not only give me glory and to use these things to ultimately worship me in, but also to represent me in whatever role that he's called you to be in. And as you work in your jobs, I also just want to challenge you to demonstrate the character of Jesus. If you work in a factory, be on time. If you have to bandage up wounds in the ER, do it with care and consideration. If you're working at any task that you're doing, do it with all of your heart. Don't take shortcuts. Be ethical whether people are looking or not because people do notice. And if we're truly doing things for the glory of God, and if we're truly representing him well, then God has called us to put all of the aspects of who Jesus is into our work and to represent him so that we do so in a way that causes people to look at us and say, what is the reason for that hope that you have? What is the reason that you're such a good employee? What is the reason that you're so kind to people? What is the reason that you are putting your whole heart behind the things that you're doing? And that then will give us an opportunity to give an answer for the hope that we have, which is always and ultimately Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you that we can look at this book of Ecclesiastes, Lord. There is a lot of things that when we make them the ultimate thing, uh, it is meaningless, Father. But we don't want to confuse worshiping and enjoying the gift with worshiping and enjoying the gift giver. Lord, we ask that you would um, just enable us to do the work you've called us to well. Help us not to be bogged down by the discouragements and the distractions and the toil and the sweat of our brow and the vexation. But instead, Father, help us to look through that clutter and fog and to find the reasons to worship you and thank you and give you glory. And help us also to be very intentional about working in a way that shows the character of Jesus and lives as a representative of yours to whatever vocation and whatever role that you have us in. Thank you again for our time. I pray that you would bless our small groups, help the conversation be fruitful, and may you receive glory for them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.